A few years ago, a book came out, and the title of the book was The Jesus I Never Knew. Now, we might think from the title that that was written by someone who heard about Jesus later on in life. But actually, the book was written by a Christian who'd been a Christian for a long, long time, since quite a young age. But the author explains in the book how at a certain point in his Christian life, he came to realize he was living with a limited view of Jesus. It's not that he believed anything wrong about Jesus, but he realized there was more to the Jesus he thought he knew so well. So he went back to the Bible to discover the Jesus he never knew. So I want us to begin our time this morning by asking ourselves, is something missing from my understanding of Jesus? Am I living with only half a Jesus? When I think of him, am I thinking of the full picture or just some parts of the picture? For example, many people's picture of Jesus doesn't go beyond what we could call the gentle Jesus. The Jesus who humbled himself to be born in an animal's feeding trough. And then to grow up in a poor family. The Jesus who taught, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. When the gentle Jesus was being betrayed and arrested, he refused to let his disciples defend him. When Peter started slashing around with a sword, Jesus said, no more of this. And he took the time to heal the man Peter had wounded. Then a few hours later, as Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The New Testament gives us plenty of evidence for the gentle Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am gentle and humble in heart. The gentle Jesus is an accurate picture of who Jesus is. But it's not the complete picture. But maybe our picture of Jesus has more to it. Maybe to the gentle Jesus, we add the suffering Jesus. The Jesus who came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is certainly an accurate picture of Jesus. We've come across it in the book of Revelation. The choir in heaven sing to Jesus, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Each of the four gospels spend a significant amount of time on the suffering Jesus. The gospels have been called passion narratives with extended introductions. In other words, whatever else they tell us about Jesus, their main concern seems to be telling us about his death. 
So the suffering Jesus is an accurate picture. But it's not the complete picture. At this point, most of us would say, that's right, we need to add the risen Jesus, don't we? If the New Testament wants us to see that Jesus died for our sins, it's equally concerned that we believe in his resurrection. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he lives to supply his people with everything they need. The risen Jesus told his disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you and I are to know Jesus as he is, we can't leave out any of this. We need to put all these parts together. We need to grasp that the gentle Jesus is also the suffering Jesus and the risen Jesus. Otherwise, we end up with a misleading picture of Jesus. And yet, there is still more to the New Testament picture of Jesus. If we're going to have a complete picture of him, we have to realize the gentle, suffering, risen Jesus is also the returning Jesus. And that's the part of the picture our passage is going to focus on this morning. It's going to help us make sure we are worshiping the complete Jesus. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. In the church Bible, that's page 1248. And in the large print Bibles, 1935. At this point, we are now well into the final section of the book of Revelation. The middle chapters took us several times through the sweep of human history. From Christ's resurrection onwards. But since chapter 14, we've been focusing on the end of history, and particularly God's wrath at the end of history. Once that has been dealt with, the focus will move to the eternal blessing of God's people. But before that, there's still more for us to see about the future of God's enemies. And we pick up this morning at chapter 19, verse 11. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, 
Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is God's word. I think the key to this passage is found in the second half of verse 12. John tells us the rider on the white horse has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. That seems an odd thing to say. Because John actually gives us three names for the rider on the horse. He is called Faithful and True, verse 11. His name is the Word of God, verse 13. And, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, John, are you telling us there's a fourth name involved here? A fourth name that's unknown? Or is something else going on? Well, remember, this is a vision of the future. And I think what we're being told is this. The rider on the horse is called faithful and true. But what it means for him to be faithful and true will not be fully revealed until this future day. His name is the word of God. But what it means for him to be the word of God will not be fully revealed until this future day. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But his kingship and his lordship will not be fully revealed until this future day. In the Old Testament especially, someone's name was more than just a name. It was an expression of their character. For example, in the Old Testament, God promised to send someone called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And before Jesus' birth, an angel told Joseph, they will call your child Emmanuel. That name wasn't just a name. It explained who Jesus was. His character. He was God coming to live among the people he created. When it comes to Jesus, his various names explain aspects of his character. And there's no doubt this rider on the white horse is Jesus. So the reference here to a name known only to himself is a reference to his character in all its fullness. 
We're being told that character will not be fully demonstrated to all of us until the end of history. The four New Testament Gospels give us a historical record of the gentle Jesus and the suffering Jesus and the risen Jesus. He has already shown himself to be all of those things. But there's more of Jesus still to be seen. Only in the future when he returns, only then will this world see Jesus in all of his glory. Only then will his character be fully shown. But here, John is shown the missing pieces that complete the picture. He's shown them in a vision ahead of time. We're shown that first of all, the returning Jesus will show himself to be the faithful and true witness and judge. Look again at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. These words faithful and and true have been used of Jesus before in Revelation. He has been called the faithful and true witness. That's what he did during his 30 or so years on earth. With his life and with his words, he told the truth about God. If we want a reliable witness to what God is like and what God wants from us, we can trust Jesus to tell us the truth. When people came to Jesus and said, what must we do to do the work God requires. In other words, how do we please God? When people asked that question, this is what Jesus told them. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And he went on to say, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. So Jesus made it very clear. I'm the one God has sent. Believe in me. Put your trust in me and you will please God. Try to please him any other way and you will fail. Later on, Jesus spelled it out again. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness to the truth about God. His testimony can be trusted. And now Revelation 19 tells us that in the future, he will show himself to be the faithful and true judge. He will bring judgment on all those who rejected his witness. He said there was no other way to salvation. And he will prove that to be true. The Jesus presented here in our passage is not the Jesus lying in a manger. This is not the Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
The returning Jesus will ride a war horse. Earlier in Revelation, we saw Jesus sending out a rider on a white horse. That rider was to bring God's partial judgment throughout history in the form of military conquest. We were told he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest, sent by Jesus. But here at the end of history, it's Jesus himself who rides the white horse. He is the conqueror bent on conquest. During his first time on earth, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. At the end of history, the returning Jesus will show those words to be true. He will come as the faithful and true judge of those who reject him. Verse 12 says his eyes are like blazing fire. Meaning they see reality. The faithful and true judge will not be fooled. He knows those who are his. And he knows those who only pretend to be his. He sees every heart and every mind. He sees the things we can hide from everybody else. And he will not make any mistakes. His enemy, the dragon, wears seven crowns. We were told that in previous chapters. Seven crowns is pretty impressive. But the returning Jesus wears many crowns. The devil claims to be king. Jesus truly is king. The devil's authority is limited in its reach and it's limited in time. But the returning Jesus comes with infinite divine authority. The Father has appointed him judge of the living and the dead. If we don't grasp that Jesus is the faithful and true judge, then we have an incomplete picture of Jesus. And when he returns, he will also show himself to be God's word of mercy and condemnation. Verse 13. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. John's gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we find that a bit hard to understand, we're given some help just a few verses further on. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So we know the word is a way of speaking about God the Son. 
If I speak to you, I'm expressing myself to you. And what we're being told is that God the Father expresses himself through his Son. When Jesus first came to earth, he came as God's expression of mercy to us. Jesus came to a world lost in sin. A world under condemnation because of its sin. And Jesus came offering mercy to a condemned world. Come to me and live. Trust in me and your sins will be forgiven. Put your faith in me and I will lift you out of the mud and mire of your sin. I'll wash you clean and I'll pay your debt. I'll walk with you. I'll give you eternal life that starts now, Jesus said. Jesus came to earth once as God's word of mercy. But when he returns, it will be as a different word. The days of mercy will be over. Jesus will express God's condemnation of all those who rejected his mercy. We might ask, well, how do we see that here in our passage? Well, verse 13 says, he will come dressed in a robe dipped in blood. We might wonder if that's a reference to his own blood poured out for our salvation. But that's not the case. Verse 15 will tell us he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. When Jesus returns, the blood on his robe will be the blood of those who rejected him. It will be too late then to come to him for salvation. There will be no more opportunity to be washed clean by his blood. If we persisted in rejecting him, we'll have to pay with our own blood. If we don't grasp that Jesus is God's word of mercy and condemnation, then we have an incomplete picture of Jesus. We also need to know Jesus is the king who saves and avenges. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 14 says the returning Jesus will be accompanied by the armies of heaven. No doubt the angels will be involved somehow on this day. But this army with Jesus is the church. 
consistently in Revelation, it's God's saved people who wear fine linen, white and clean. So those who've come to Jesus for mercy do not need to fear his return. They will be at his side rather than on the opposing side. Jesus' return will give ample evidence he's the king who saves. All those purchased by his blood will be there as proof that he saves. But he will also prove to be the one who brings vengeance on God's enemies. The lamb who was slain will return as the conquering lion. The king of kings and lord of lords. We might be wondering at this point, is this a literal picture of Jesus' return? Is he going to ride a literal horse? Are we going to ride literal horses beside him on that day? Are we going to join him in a literal battlefield with swords and whatever else? Well, verse 15 helps us answer those questions. We're told that coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. That tells us we're not to think of a medieval style battle on some muddy battlefield where we join Jesus in sword fighting against his enemies. No, this is a picture of a battle on a battlefield that helps us understand who Jesus is. He's the conquering king but not a king who fights with an iron sword. His word is the sharp sword that will strike down the nations. That's what it means to say the sword is coming out of his mouth. So this vision is not giving us precise details of how Jesus will bring vengeance. We're being taught a truth about Jesus. The king who brings salvation today to those who trust him will bring vengeance in the future to all who resist him. And if you and I have a part to play on that day as God's people, it will not be with literal swords. It will be as witnesses for the prosecution. The church's word of witness throughout history will be enough to condemn unbelievers at the end of history. Those who bore testimony to Jesus will be there to prove God's justice. Their witness will show he is right to take vengeance. And those who rejected the church's witness and who persecuted the church If we don't grasp that Jesus is the king who saves and avenges, then we have an incomplete picture of Jesus. Finally in this passage, Jesus is the host of a wedding and a wake. Earlier in chapter 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb was announced. Here, 
another supper is announced. And it's a supper we do not want to be part of. Verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the third time Revelation has referred to the last battle at the end of history. Each time, very similar language is used. Chapter 16 described how the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will gather the kings of the whole world. They will gather for battle on the great day of God Almighty. That battle was referred to as Armageddon. Then in chapter 17, we were told the kings will give their power and authority to the beast. And will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And here in chapter 19, we have the same description. Telling us we're talking about the same last battle. It will be described again in the passage we'll look at next week. There we'll be told what the outcome of the battle is for Satan. Here, it's the end of the beast and the false prophet that's described for us. And earlier in the book, we learned that those two are Satan's representatives. The beast, we learned, comes with Satan's daunting strength. He's Satan's sledgehammer in this world. And he has many incarnations. He appears in the form of oppressive governments throughout history. Rulers or regimes that put themselves in the place of God. Who demand the kind of allegiance that belongs only to God. And we saw that the false prophet or the second beast comes as Satan's spin doctor in this world. If the first beast comes with daunting strength, Satan's other representative takes a much more subtle approach. His name gives it away. He's the false prophet. He deals in deceit and lies. But both those beasts work together. They work to either batter or to deceive men and women into false worship. And here, we're told about the destiny of these two representatives of Satan. At the end of history, Satan's sledgehammer and Satan's spin doctor will be finally overthrown, never to rise again.
Look how the invitation goes out to this last battle in verse 17. We've already noticed it's described here as a supper. It's the horrible alternative to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That supper is prepared for God's faithful people, the church. It will be a time of celebration. But look who's invited to this other supper. The birds. Vultures and crows. Birds of prey that feed on dead and rotting flesh. The significance of this invitation is that even before this last battle begins, there's absolutely no doubt about the outcome. The birds are invited ahead of time to feast on God's fallen enemies. And notice these enemies are not just kings. It's not just powerful enemies of God who will be struck down. Verse 18 says, it's all people who've not given their allegiance to Jesus. All people free and slave, great and small. And as we've seen before, each time this last battle is described, the picture is consistent. It will be worldwide, it will be short, and the lamb will win. Look again at verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Verse 21 says, The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Each time this battle is described, it's over in an instant. God's enemies gather impressively for war and then snap, it's over. The lamb wins. One writer says, the battle that ends history is resolved in the blink of an eye. So we are not to think of some finely balanced, drawn out struggle between the lamb and his enemies. No, to line up against the returning lamb is to be defeated before the battle even gets going. And after the death of God's enemies comes the wake, otherwise known as the great supper of God. This picture of birds gorging on flesh is picking up a vision from the book of Ezekiel. The last battle was also prophesied there. It's mentioned in the book of Isaiah too. It's a picture showing the total victory of the rider on the white horse. Total victory for the lamb. The aftermath of the battle is pictured as a vast battlefield covered in bodies with no one to bury them. And the only sound is birds gorging on flesh. It's horrible. And it's meant to be. The beast and the false prophet promised victory. They promised the overthrow of God and his Messiah. 
They conspired together against God's Messiah, as Psalm 2 said. But they will fall in a moment. And all those who followed them will fall too. Sometimes people hear about Jesus and they say, it's not for me. If it means something to you, that's great. But it's just not for me. The book of Revelation will not allow that kind of reaction. Maybe we could hear about the gentle Jesus and walk away. Or the suffering Jesus or the risen Jesus. Maybe we could see those parts of the picture and think, it's not for me. But when we see the full picture, when we see the returning Jesus, don't you see, we can't opt out. We're either in the army that will share his victory or we're in the army that will fall by his sword. The returning Jesus is either our eternal salvation or he is our biggest problem. We dare not walk away and say, it's not for me. Maybe you have made a profession of faith in Jesus. If that's the case, make sure you are living with a complete picture of Jesus. He is gentle. He cares about your worries and your burdens. He did suffer so you could be saved from your sin, free from God's condemnation, so you could be accepted as God's friend, his child. And Jesus did rise so you could be certain of rising too one day. All of those things are true. They're wonderfully true. Just make sure you add this other piece to your picture of Jesus. One day he will crush those who live as if they are God. Who go through life saying, my will be done. That's a sober warning for those who take his grace for granted. But when we are seeking to live for Jesus and to serve him, then could there be any greater comfort than this part of the picture? Could there be any greater comfort than knowing one day every last enemy will be defeated? The lamb wins. And we will win with him. We're going to join together in praising him as Lord of all. We'll do that as we sing, All Heal the Power of Jesus' Name.